0: Hey guys. Due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk.
1: Good morning, faithful reader.
0: Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic, Erratic. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where... A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Whatever happened to the Wizard of the
1: West? What other privileges do Mantles grant people?
0: And do I detect some tension between Juniper and Eris? <laughs> well, vying for the protagonists' attentions will do that.
1: Victory Most Fickle of Friends. Tagreb saying
0: This chapter is an important one, but roughly but roughly half of it. It's just commentary on how extraordinarily beautiful the empress is. You can appreciate that Kat sends us through an editor to cut down from the 90% it started with.
1: I mean, we know what Kat's about at this point. No real surprise there. And uh, it makes sense from a (laughs) meta standpoint that even when she's not the main character in most of the conversations here, she is the focal point of the chapter. She's the empress. She's the Jade Empress. But it is a it's a chapter that takes place pretty much entirely within or at least on the tower. Uh, it starts off with Cat meeting Militia. There's some discussion with uh, with her introducing who Cat is. A good portion of the chapter is Cat and Eris mm-hmm. arguing about who's the best general or Who's the Who's the better named? I guess there's there's some vying, some political vying here. Cat takes a pretty firm stance and commits a just a smidge of assault. And Eris takes advantage of that to propose a gamble that Eris will... is proposing. <laughs> Not in that way yet, but to propose a gamble that will determine. Sort of cat's fate in the pricey military structure and the chapter wraps up with black advising cat to cheat in this gamble which fair enough that's that's some pretty solid advice i would say given what's going on there but uh it's it's basically an entire chapter devoted to setting up the next major plot arc
0: and so we begin in the wake of everyone in the room kneeling before the Empress, Captain having hesitated, Catherine and Black having not. And in this moment of ritualized defiance isn't quite the right word, but ritualized refusal to bend, Catherine, of course, acknowledges the most important thing. Gods, even her voice was gorgeous. How is that fair in any way? I knew taking a name could change your appearance over time, but somehow I got the feeling that wasn't the case with militia uh but, but but it is right like she's clearly story level meta fundamentally metaphysically attractive right yeah but recall
1: or whatever the future version of recall is because we find that out in this chapter recall yeah pre-call that's Militia is chosen from among Pracy as being one of the most physically attractive people in the land, including she's drawn from a category that includes, you know, the high Lords and ladies and their children and just Pracy in general. And Militia is still picked from that crowd as being topped here. So even before name we're
0: we're dealing with the, the, the top of the top here. For sure. And names are established to not really change the fundamentals of someone, but rather exacerbate them. But I think Catherine's need to state the conviction that Militia is just naturally so hot is probably a component of the name right there. The natural seeming of the supernatural beauty layered upon the extreme... Natural beauty. Oh sure. When you assume kind of layers you expect from her.
1: Absolutely. When you assume a mantle, you're that's creation agreeing that your story is worth having actual power. And part of her story is how beautiful she is. So that's her beauty is basically ingrained into creation at this point. So yeah, that's fair.
0: Assumption of a mantle does grant certain privileges. It does. But militia is. Not merely a dread empress, but an empress to dread. She greets Catherine Foundling, who is introduced to her by Black, and she muses on how it's been. on how the knight has delayed taking an apprentice, and then, I look forward to finding out how you changed his mind. I must confess, I have great hopes for you, Squire. She just paints a target right on Catherine Foundling's back. Like, I get Black making the choice to do that, but. Militia's pulling strings to manipulate things in a thousand different ways. What are the 14 plans do you think she's advanced by saying this?
1: It It's definitely a little rude to Kat, you're right. And also probably to Black a little bit. since He brings his his squire in and she immediately is like, Hey, nobles, this person's more important than all of you. Good luck. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I'm sure Black expected some level of that, but it's still a little rude.
0: Yeah, but... What's he going to do? You don't really disagree with the Empress in front of court. At least not openly.
1: According to Kat, as we have her now, she says as much and goes on to say, why would you want to when you're being smiled at by her? Which, like, Kat, get a hold of yourself. But it's very fun that Kat's at that stage where she's just awestruck by this person with a name and authority. And, you know, give it a few books and this sentiment will have completely evaporated and then give it a few more and she pretty much reverses where it's a struggle to agree with militia on anything this these early this early version of cat who's meeting all of these people is she's very cute
0: she's awestruck frankly she has no understanding of how she should comport herself she has no understanding of what this world is she has no understanding of the delicate interplay that she stumbled into and she knows that he does and
1: she just expresses it in kind of a strange way she is thinking of the the relationship between black and militia in particular and she she says that uh where are we cat thinks that she's nominally on black side blacks on militia's side and then she thinks that Black is her, malicious, staunchest supporter, but I'd been given to understand that there were nuances at play. And the way that's phrased is so funny to me, because <laughs> the fact that Cat feels the need to consider, well, there's probably nuances at play in a relationship between two humans, especially two humans who are at the top of a political apparatus known for being Byzantine in its interpersonal relationships at best.
0: Yeah, cat. I would imagine there's some nuance there. She catches on quick though. She's been under Black's tutelage, and she says he'd made it clear from the beginning that while he deferred to the Empress, he didn't agree with her every decision. And yeah, cat. in a relationship between two humans, especially two humans at the top of a political apparatus known for being Byzantine and its personal relations at best. Yeah, I would imagine there's some nuance there. So I have a question. Okay. Mazes died. He did. That wasn't your question, right? Well, Militia says, It is a great shame that Governor Mazes forced her hand in such a way. I do dislike ending old bloodlines. What happened to his bloodline? I thought he was sent to to Calo to satisfy the actual high seat from which he hailed, and his father or something was in charge? But did, did Militia just prune the entire pracy royal noble tree? Did, did she just kill everyone? Was that an excuse? Yeah, I'm
1: not sure. I, I don't recall there being discussion of retribution back home, but maybe he didn't have siblings and his parents are too old to produce further heirs i guess that's that was all i could come up with i obviously that doesn't rule out things like adoption but since the price I you're feel really like all the about, price, yeah yeah not it doesn't seem like they're big on adoption for the purposes of nobility
0: because if you're a noble you're part of a, a literal effective breeding program it's not right 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 which is a weird way for genetics to work but given the setting totally cool with it oh
1: yeah yeah it's i'm not i'm not sure I, I because as far as we're aware his father i believe is still high lord in in price so uh, I, i'm not sure it, it might just be as simple as he was an only child of only children or something
0: i also find it hard to believe that the pricey don't have a way to just eat enough babies until you make a baby of your own probably enough being roughly 200. are there any noble children who are not born in war crime Truly. in the setting right in real life any noble child is not to blame for their circumstances at the birth as long as they either throw it all away or use it to burn down the institution which happens all the time thankfully uh-huh so in this
1: so in this, <laughs> so in, this uh, in this silence probably that that follows this I dislike ending old bloodlines the black Knight turns to face the crowd too and there was no such regret on his face. A hint of the thing I'd glimpsed in Summerholm was peering out through those unsettling green eyes, offering the aristocrats a smile that bared too many teeth to be anything of the sort. This man, known for subtlety, known for being pretty stoic, all things considered, when he's not bantering with his buddies, just turns around and offers a maniacal grin at all of his enemies in this court where they cannot touch him this seems like a very bold provocative play knowing that he really can't touch them either unless they to quote the empress force his hand. It's such a like flashy move for him. It's bold. It's it's definitely a powerful move, but it it doesn't feel like it fully fits into type for black unless this is just I don't know. He's comfortable not advancing any of any of malicious plots aside from reminding everybody that he's the ironclad monster that she has available to (laughs) fulfill her will
0: i mean it is all scripted in advance whether explicitly between black and militia or just knowing each other plus militia can plan anything and black can plan anything they are a great pair of besties i don't think they'll ever disagree with each other on anything
1: (laughs) that's actually a really interesting point about kat talks about this a little bit how she's understands that this isn't a fully spontaneous conversation, but it's not exactly scripted, like you said. But she says that they've both been in their respective roles, lowercase here, their position is of power, for so long that they don't need to plan out the discussion. They just know what their goals, their their collective goal is, and can move towards that collaboratively. And I'm wondering, is this how the Dread Emperor, Empress, and the Black Knight function generally when they're working together well like at the peak of their power is this how previous iterations have functioned of of the pair obviously black uh, let's be more direct here obviously Amadeus and Militia are incredibly close on a personal level and so that helps things but I, I do wonder if the fact that these specific roles these names have been operating in this kind of pattern for ever, lends weight to, lends skill to the moves they're making here. If the previous set of Emperor and Black Knight were able to do things almost as well, just because their roles guided them into doing it.
0: We'll have to keep this in mind if we see much interplay between Nim and the Empress later on.
1: Oh, that's a good call. We do get another Black Knight that we can look at.
0: Possibly the greatest Black Knight of the post-Amadeus Age. Possibly, yeah. That's a
1: I mean that's a it's a tough tough role to fill, but maybe. Kat goes on to run through what's going on and see how they each have their own role in this discussion, each being militia and and the black knight. One is the smiling empress who's in charge of everything, and one is the black knight who's her awful <laughs> monster that she apparently has on a leash. And the phrase that Kat uses here is Leashes are such slippery things. And I understand the relationship between Militia and Amadeus is not this, but why did this take such a such a turn? I don't know. This, The phrasing there got really kink-focused, I would say, <laughs> sort of out of nowhere.
0: Catherine has absolutely no idea who Militia is at this point. Because in that sentence, in that section, the Emperor smiles and lays a hand on Black's arm, 400 eyes following the gesture. And then Cat, you know, puppets her. She plays a little game of putting words in the Empress's mouth. Look at my monster, she seemed to be saying. Isn't he dangerous? Remember, I'm the only thing standing between you and him. So why don't you all behave, my darlings? Leashes are such slippery things. That has nothing to do with the way Militia actually acts or talks. I understand Cat is recognizing some of the implicit threats and sentiments here, but she does not have her voice down at all.
1: Yeah, that's too, I don't know, stingo-layered for Militia. (laughs) And, uh, Militia playing the role of the protector of the noble houses is definitely not a common one for her. So, again, Kat's first appearance in court, she's figuring things out, slowly. What a weirdo. Honestly. But, you
0: know, Kat has
1: limitations. She does, and... Black seems to think that those limitations being publicly made obvious isn't such a bad thing because the court will see them and think that Kat is weaker than she is and tells her that that can be useful. And I, I guess my question to that is Kat is pretty weak. She's weak among named. She's in a transition role that she hasn't even fully grabbed yet, grasped yet, donned yet. And she's also, as far as political figures go, pretty far down the ladder at this point. She's basically the girl that Black is protecting, more or less. So yeah, being underestimated is useful. But is Kat being actually underestimated, or is it pretty easy to estimate exactly where she is at this point?
0: And yet, she manages to take on reverse that advice as she goes forward. She's exceptionally weak for the category she's in. She's exceptionally weak for someone in with a personal relationship, personal working relationship with the Black Knight. She's exceptionally weak for a named. She's a powerful human, but weak by all of her greater categories. But soon enough, she will begin to trade on reputation, overdrawing to victory consistently. She is not learning the lesson here that Black wants her to. But the lesson she wants to learn here is etiquette. She says that what they taught her at the orphanage was insufficient, which of course it was, because this is royal court where etiquette is a full-time job.
1: You don't think that came up in the Imperial
0: Orphanage's curriculum? I mean, it's still in Cal. They didn't go above duchy-level stuff. (laughs) All right. But when she asks for etiquette classes, Black says, I'll work it into your schedule. Am I supposed to believe he doesn't already have... Well, am I supposed to believe he hasn't had Scribe already have foreseen and planned for this? Like, Catherine asks, and he obliges. Well... But he's not actually doing anything.
1: No. They're going to leave here, and he's going to say, hey, Scribe, and she's going to say, yep, her first lesson's tomorrow. Scribe knows, but... You know, she had to set it up for after this so Kat would understand why she's in etiquette lessons.
0: Scribe can't know what he's thinking. She's very good, but she's not a mind reader.
1: Uh-huh. This isn't about reading Black's mind. It's about understanding what how the, this event was going to go and knowing what the results were going to be.
0: She needs to have eyes in the event to know what actually happened, though. There are too many variables. Scribe's not here. She doesn't know what's happening. Come on is definitely not here. I completely agree 100%. Thank you. If I'm wrong, I will eat my own hat. And then Catherine continues to be her future self, saying, if I'm going to be rude to one of them, I want to be on purpose. And she does so going forward. (laughs) I mean, for
1: a powerful person, yeah, that's a good mindset to have. Sometimes you got to be rude. And accidental rudeness is not going to really benefit you mostly unless you're you know a certain type of political figure but i think i think cat is showing some wisdom here and also yes that being able to just be rude to people is sort of her thing later on
0: whereas black's thing is wholesale slaughter of the noble class wheresoever permitted black leaves catherine alone because he has work to get to Uh, The High Lady of Catan has been making noises about revising the legal number of household troops. She seems to need a reminder as to why she inherited her seat so young. And in reply, Catherine snorts. Unsud stuff. But she snorts. Black says, I need to go to talk to someone whose mother or father or whatever I killed, I'm sure. And Catherine laughs at that. They're well-suited.
1: Look, it's a noble getting punished. It's great. Everybody loves it. Everybody's having a good time. It's just, it's what you would expect in a court like this, surrounded by nobles. You got to get together with the only other person here you know, and make fun of people
0: who lost family members tragically. Maybe Catherine actually is suited to the Precy court. Oh no. But we'll find out because she's left alone. Black goes off to do his thing. Captain is elsewhere. And that's really the entirety of the calamitous party. Except. Don't drink that, Scribe murmured. Scribe's here! Also, nobody told Catherine not to drink the wine. And Catherine has to be told out of nowhere by Scribe. Which, I I get that there's some trial-by-fire stuff that Black's always trying to weave in. But some of the stuff coming into the tower seemed foolish lack of preparation, like with the demon. And this part, with Scribe... I think you can safely plan around, okay, Scribe will get there It's Scribe. But that's just mean. And you know Black and Captain are going to be laughing about that later. They really
1: just absolutely refuse to prepare Catherine for this in any way whatsoever. And as we'll find out next chapter, it's not even as though they took the only options and didn't prepare Cat. They Black seems to have, on multiple steps, just chosen the more difficult way to handle this entire thing and then also not prepared Cat for it. He was... He's being very cruel right now. And these don't feel like lessons. They just feel like Black's not a nice person sometimes.
0: (laughs) Truly, no one has thought this about the Black Knight before. We're coming to all sorts of new conclusions. Black Knight might not be nice. Captain might be a little tall. Scribe is really sneaky? Yeah,
1: Kat talks about how Scribe appeared. She says there was a ring of empty space around me for at least twenty feet, which made it all the more ridiculous I hadn't seen or heard her coming. And I don't know, the I don't get the vibe of Scribe sneaking. She's not like a thief who isn't who who can hide behind things and be completely silent or, or anything like that. Scribe is often described as fading into the background or stepping out of the background. She doesn't sneak. She's just not noticed. But Kat here is saying that she doesn't see her. And I'm wondering how much of that is actually what happened or whether the fact that, you know, you can never really focus on Scribe. Kat maybe did see Scribe. She probably looked at her, but just didn't pay any attention to that fact until Scribe was ready to be noticed. I don't know. There's Scribe's not being focused on abilities are... Very intriguing to me,
0: and I don't think Catherine's personal scribe ever becomes that. It tells that he's twelve feet tall, but yeah, well,
1: yeah. I mean, his her personal scribe, her second, is definitely more of a military position. I mean, that adjutant is is definitely a a military side thing, whereas scribe is more bureaucratic. So he is her right hand man, man in taking care of the army, the logistics and all that, but also in a battle. And uh, being inobtrusive does not benefit him. He needs to be seen. He needs to be available. So it is, it is cool how they have a lot of similarities, but also one is an orc and one is just a lady who writes on a lot of scrolls.
0: One has permanently ink-stained fingers. One has permanently skeletonized fingers. Spoiler alert. Catherine <laughs> then eyes the cup of wine wistfully. She's getting there. And she hates praise.
1: That really does never change, huh? No. But we do learn a little bit about Scribe, which is always fun to notice because by the end of the story, we have learned almost nothing about Scribe. Scribe's not from Pryce. Wasn't born in Pryce. We don't know necessarily where, but she's not, by birth, Pracy.
0: The thing is, we're not going to find out much about Scribe because... Very little is known about Scribe, quote, given how rarely she made it into the stories. Which is very fitting, considering that she's the one who makes the stories. I have little doubt that she is the propaganda organ of the Calamities. Militia has her own propaganda orga- organisms, but Scribe made all the stories. If she ever appeared in one, she removed herself. Let someone else take the glory, like Assassin.
1: Surely you mean propaganda's organism.
0: I don't know what I would do without you, <laughs> and I don't know what Catherine would do without Scribe and her warnings.
1: Yeah, Cat takes a glance over at the Empress during this discussion, and Scribe decides to offer a very useful piece of advice and says, "Be careful with her." Her, of course, being the Dread Empress. Now, Cat's very new to all of this; not a hundred percent sure what's going on, making mistakes. But that feels like one of those pieces of advice that just didn't need to be said, which coming from a lot of people is fine. A lot of people could use that as a lead into a conversation, which Scribe is doing here. It just feels out of place for Scribe to be doing it, which I think is, one, a little funny, <laughs> the idea of saying, hey, the leader of praise, be careful. But it's also indicative of how furious Eudokia is being here, how much of a threat she thinks the dread empress is how much she dislikes her as we see that she opens up she initiates a conversation with cat as a warning about militia
0: right in front of the empress which is also a revelation of her both her power and her trust in her power she opens with a warning that i think would be reasonable in anybody's mouth i can't imagine anyone would take offense unless it was said at a rude point. Be careful with the empress. That that is a deliberate reputation. But then scribe digs a hole deeper and deeper. You don't understand how dangerous she is. The plain faced woman murmured. Not even black does, and they've not even black does, and he's known her the longest. By the end of the conversation, where she talks about the rise of the Empress and stuff. We're going to, we'll talk about it. Don't worry. Bear with listeners. She straight up says, we should have an emperor, not an Empress in front of militia, in front of the court with full confidence in their security. And then she disappears. Like what a power move. He is at once
1: utterly fearless and obviously completely devoted to black. And, Incredibly confident that her name is protecting her in the tower itself. It it is one of the bolder. You know, we were talking about Black's bold move to start off this chapter. This somehow trumps that. She's a uh, Yudokia. She goes for it,
0: and her distaste for the Empress exceeds, in some ways, even her loyalty. When she starts giving the warning to Kat, she says, "You don't understand how dangerous she is." Not even Black does, and he's known her the longest. Black doesn't know, but I, I know that she's the worst. She's dangerous. She's, okay, we know she's evil.
1: It is a little bit of a running theme with Scribe, partially because it is her role within the Calamities, but also I think just it's a personality thing that she does what she thinks is best for Black, and a lot of that is very useful. It's taking care of the logistics, taking care of planning before Black needs to say anything, having, you know, Kat's clothing ready before she, you know, all the little things she does up to the biggest things she does. But I do think some of it's just a personal devotion situation where she takes that aspect, lowercase a, that aspect of her personality of their relationship and expands it to include all parts of this relationship, all facets of how they interact with each other, And I wonder how much of that is a product of her name encompassing so much of who she is, and how much of that is just, she's a little obsessed.
0: And given her name and role in the story, we'll never have a way to pick that apart. (laughs) True.
1: (laughs) Well, I think we get a little bit, we're able to pull it apart just a little bit when she's in service, ostensibly, to Catherine towards the end. We get a little bit more information on the relationship between her and Black, but not enough to really really dive in, I don't think. But we get, uh, in this conversation, we do get the brief story of the rise of Militia, which, um, to quickly summarize, the previous Dread Empress, Nefarious, had sent out his agents to find attractive people in praise to bring back to um, to his harem, more or less. And Militia was picked as one of those while she was a waitress, um, and used that in to work her way into the emperor's trust, and then uh, utilizing, according to scribe, patience, poison, and making the right promises, she usurped nefarious and became dread empress. It's it's there's a, a bit more to the story. Not it's not super detailed here, but uh, it's a you know it's an impressive feat for <laughs> for militia, to say the least.
0: It's not super detailed, and it is deeply impressive. Not to dive into unpleasant matters, Uh, content warning in advance, this next phase of conversation is going to be about some of the dynamics of the harem, but Nefarious fails to invade Callow, gets whipped by the Wizard of the West, according to Catherine, and Scribe replies, the nature of his fall was less charming than your expression might imply. Nefarious never again left the tower after he returned, leaving matters of ruling to the chancellor. He spent his time expanding the ranks of his seraglio. That's all she says. Those words. And Catherine says, the word made her skin crawl. She'd known some of the dread emperors and empresses as they kept consorts. But from the way Scribe was talking about it, Nefarious hadn't been looking for volunteers. Why? What? I mean, I'm very happy to believe that sh- he wasn't looking for volunteers. The wickednesses and perversions of dread tyranny are inherent to the office. But she said, from the way Scribe was talking about it, Nefarious hadn't been looking for volunteers. The nine words are just, he spent his time expanding the ranks of his. And then there's a tenth word, Seraglio. I miscounted.
1: It very well could just be the way Scribe says it. We, we don't get a lot of detail here because Ah. if I, if I say he spent his time expanding the ranks of his seraglio, okay, that can mean any number of things. But if I say he spent his time and then I pause and grimace and say, expanding the ranks of his, and then I grimace again when I say seraglio, I think, I think that implies some nastiness.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Of course.
1: And speaking of nastiness, it's just a little side note here. We do, we were discussing this at the beginning Scribe does is of the opinion that malicious beauty has little to do with her name, so there is that. Um, but when uh, malicious father protested her being abducted, I suppose uh, he was nailed to the floor of his own inn. Not just you know beaten and left or anything or killed outright, just nailed to the floor, and that is just nefarious. Did not mess around.
0: I wonder how he got its name.
1: It's really hard to tell. I, it seems like the Dread Emperors and Empresses just seem to take a evil-sounding name that has nothing really to do with their personalities, and that's probably the case here.
0: But Militia got through it with patience, poison, and making the right promises.
1: And Cat, like myself, was very interested in what those promises were, and Scribe is frustratingly coy about it. She says, Cat asks, what did she promise him? And Scribe says what she needed to not as much as she should have i am so very curious what that means did she just promise him being black knight and scribe thinks she should have promised him becoming the emperor i don't know there's i'm so curious about what that what that conversation looks like
0: hey help me be empress and you can be emperor
1: well help me achieve power here in some way you know or chance chancellor yeah exactly
0: Hey, I'll make you emperor if you let me be the guy who takes your power. I love it. That's
1: a pretty fair trade.
0: Well, the thing is, with Amadeus, you get something better than fair. He's there for you.
1: Yeah, the scribe says that he would break the world for one of us, the Calamities. In some ways, he already has. And that's it's just like father, like daughter, where that's Cat with the woe and her, her friends and family. It's adorable how willing they are to just hair-down institutions for their friends. That's what you need in a friend.
0: And lots of people have lots of really cool friends
1: at this party. Scribe disappears, stepping behind someone who is described as having hair shaped like a roaring dragon. And that is some top-level stuff. I'm so impressed. I need a a Pracy hairdresser.
0: I would not trust a
1: Pracy near me with a blade. Even if they promised you hair that looked like a roaring
0: dragon? I've lived long enough. I can take the risk. There you go. So, I'm really curious about Catherine's magical education up to this point. Because seeing Scribe Disappear, Catherine says, if I hadn't known how hilariously disproportionate the amount of magic needed for even the smallest transportation spells was, I would have thought she'd teleported. How does she know this? Did she just hear someone say once, oh, teleportation's basically impossible? Because by the end of the book, she still barely knows how Trismegistan magic works. And that's the only one she knows about. I'm wondering if that's just like
1: a truth that people know, like how the average person probably knows how absurdly expensive in terms of weight it is to fuel a rocket or, you know, that kind of thing where we don't really know the details, but we do know that it's difficult to figure out how much fuel it takes to launch a rocket into space. It very well may be that people just know that teleportation magic is way more expensive than you would think it should be, and they don't know anything past that. I don't know.
0: I will give that one to you. Or I'll give that one to Catherine. What I will not give her is her next claim. She says, It wasn't every day I got spoken treason to. She grew up in lore. She worked as a bartender (laughs) for disaffected veterans. I, I, I suspect that she's been spoken treason to most days. Maybe she doesn't consider it treason because she doesn't
1: really consider callow to be part of praise but yeah I think she's <laughs> maybe just meaning recently
0: but apparently scribe and Ranger will both when they're around continue the pattern since scribe said she and Ranger agreed basically only on praise needing an emperor not an empress
1: yeah which makes sense Ranger is kind of Ranger and S- kind of black's biggest fans as much as that's a, a strange thing label to put on she kind of steams above that sort of thing but, but those two are more supportive of black than just about anybody else alive and i think part of that is that they are the two who are most aware of who and what he is compared to just about anybody else and other than himself but he's not willing to to either think or say that he should be emperor but Scribe sticks around and supports Black, whereas uh, she, we know that uh, Ranger disappeared pretty much right away. We get uh, the mention that Kat says that uh, Ranger had left pretty early on into the conquest. If I recall correctly, didn't Ranger leave before the Battle of stregus was even over? Like when
0: Kinda, they, yeah.
1: The Calamities were gathering as the battle was winding down and Ranger was already gone, and that was like... The opening battle of the Conquest. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that you can count Ranger as having really been involved in the Conquest particularly.
0: I mean, in some ways it was also the closing battle of the Conquest. Everything else was just a skirmish. I mean, <laughs> a little mopping up action. Fair enough. But realizing that Eudokia, who we've recently had confirmed is not from praise, and Ranger, who is a half-elf from the sea... Though I don't think we know either of those yet. In in recognizing that these two have their sentiments, Catherine thinks, so there were Pracy who wanted Black to claim the tower. Scribe and Ranger. The two most Pracy people around. Good Pre- job.
1: Pracy by disposition.
0: So as Pracy as the hidden horror?
1: Exactly. Cat then gives a a little bit of a Ethnic summary of the Wasteland. We, you know, a little bit of discussion about the Sininke and the Tegreb, the Duni, and part of this that I thought was interesting. It doesn't really affect much other than where it inter- in, where it interacts with the Duni, The fact that the Duni are not particularly well liked and are set apart because they're the only pale Pracy. I think we the the, the Duny are. We we find out here hmm, that was a mess of a introduction. We find out here that the Pracy are people who have ancient Mitsun roots. So I guess I was, prior to this, I was sort of operating under the assumption that the Suninke were the direct descendants of the Mitsuns and not the Duni. So this is interesting. The the Mitsuns were, you know, the white people who showed up <laughs> and conquered Prace. Didn't really make that connection before, but it does make some sense given the, obsession with bloodlines that uh the Pracy nobles tend to have that their bloodlines are probably traced to prior to the meets conquest of praise so uh, it's interesting i don't know i hadn't really picked up on that before
0: the duny have accomplished a lot for themselves despite being of the ancient imperial blood and thus lesser blood uh there have been obviously duny black knights um, there have been Duny chancellors, which is the closest thing you can get to the throne, by which I mean it's the stepping stone to the throne historically. But there's never been a Duny warlock and never been a Duny dread tyrant.
1: Yeah, the never having a, a Dooney emperor makes some sense, though that is complicated by the Duny chancellors for obvious reasons. So it's interesting that none of the Dooney ever succeeded in stepping from Chancellor to Dread Emperor or Empress, but the never having a Dooney warlock is interesting because that's not, compared to the others, not a particularly political position inherently. It is something that high-ranking Precy achieve and it's prestigious and all that, but it's not the same as a Chancellor or a Dread Emperor or even a Black Knight. So I'm wondering if there's an innate thing... Or if it's a magical training restriction, obviously the nobles breed for magical talent. We we learn that, and that's that comes up quite a bit. But never having a Dooney warlock is I don't know. Is that uh, is that just because they aren't bred for magical talent, or are they are the Dooney just forbidden from getting good at magic? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. Sparks thought. Though so, it is worth knowing that. Though the warlock may not be the most political of pracy roles. Let us be real here. The current warlock is the sovereign of the red skies and later blows up uh, blows up the economic heart of praise in his stuff. Okay. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it it's not a political role, but it
1: it it it, it, it is a guy who can kill everybody. So if you have enough personal power, you're pretty much automatically a political person yes
0: the state has a monopoly on violence and so if you're the violence maker you are the state uh <laughs> but she then says that the very idea of a Dooney probably mean just Dooney holding the tower but I'll, I'll read the whole thing actually for context but no warlock and no one of those roots had ever held the tower the very idea was anathema to the beliefs of most of the old nobility and you know what black proved them right because you get someone from the bad race in a position of some power. Some significant, but relatively small power. The knight is a tool, more than I think any of the other major pricey roles. The knight is the empress's sword. But you get a bad race in that least of the positions. And now he starts bringing like literal other races, like goblins and orcs into the government. Into... There's, there's an Orc Marshal, which isn't a role, but it's quite the role. There are goblins still kept aside, actually. That's fine. They're integrated to the legions, and they're never going to be allowed power. Everybody knows that. I I think the nobles can put up with the goblins, because they don't have to see them. That's just- the orcs, like, apparently you let one in, you let them all in from a praisey perspective. So good job, Black.
1: He's a Pioneer in civil liberties and just helping Price just become more good. And I'll leave it there. Kat, after thinking through all of this, gets a little hungry and heads to uh, get a snack from you know the, the appetizer tables. And she sees a bunch of food, says odds are it's just as poisoned as the wine. And then she hovers around the table to see if other people are eating anything before writing it off as though if other people are eating it, it would be safe. Does she not recall how, like, two minutes ago, Scry was telling her everything's poisoned and people take the antidote before they come? If the food's poisoned, that probably also is true here, Cat, <laughs> She is just—she's trying to get poisoned, I think.
0: I just love the natural conclusion of her thought, though. She sees all this food and she thinks, okay, either it's edible or—and this is a very likely thing— they made a bunch of delicious Praise quality food and poison it all to just set it there and let people look at it, which actually would be great. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I mean,
1: that fits in with the culture of waste that a lot of the nobles seem to have. It's
0: not that wasteful, though, because Praise is an abundant land. Right. But she does find someone at the food. She recognizes the silhouette even from a distance because she didn't know a lot of orcs as tall as juniper aside from Hakram. I feel like there are seven too many words in that sentence. That is to say, I think she can add that I didn't know a lot of orcs. I mean she knows Juniper, Hawkram, Nock,
1: some other orcs in the rat company. What a, that's at least four. And she met uh, Juniper's mother back when right before they all exploded.
0: Frankly I wonder if Juniper knows about that or if it was kept under wraps. <laughs> like really. Nothing was accomplished by the pracy in the wake of that explosion particularly. It doesn't seem worth publicizing, if you can keep, uh, keep it on the down though. I'm sure weird explosions happen in Legion camps all the time. There are goblins. Yeah, there are goblins everywhere. I am I like to imagine,
1: then, that at some family get-together, Juniper's told about this, and just off-screen, <laughs> Juniper and Kat have a conversation. So, uh, were you there when my mom blew up? It's, it's a nice bonding experience for him.
0: So, uh... Juniper takes the food, and Catherine does exhibit a droplet of scents, and says, I don't suppose those are safe. And Juniper replies, "Bishara told me what the antidote for tonight was. Hey, I think that's the first we heard of her. I love her. But not as much as Juniper is gonna.
1: <laughs> it's true. It, it is fun that her introduction comes from Juniper rather than her being on screen. That's cute. Just
0: ideal. They. She gave her a little strategy for the evening. They kill people together. They're just cute. Extremely. And then a female voice comes in from behind Catherine. When Juniper says that she should have planned better, we hear a common failure of hers I've found.
1: And we know who this is. Who this is. We find out pretty soon that it's Eris. And so Cat, naturally, the little, little jab was tossed her way. She... Times to wield her rapier wit and retorts with, The density of smugness in this room has suddenly intensified. And that is not one of Kat's better attempts at sparring, verbally sparring with anybody, actually. It's such like a, you know, wording and syntax aside, the the, the vibe of it is so extremely middle school. And I'm very, very here for it. That it shows up here in Kat's first appearance at Precy Court.
0: I like Disney Channel original movies as much as the next guy. And I'm glad to see Catherine does too. <laughs> Honestly, though. <laughs> but I'm amazed at the description here. Catherine turns towards the source of the comment and sees a, quote, pretty dark-skinned girl. This is Eris, and she's being called pretty, just pretty. The Empress being so close is apparently dulling everything else by comparison, which, yeah, sure. But I think this might be the stiffest, coldest reaction Catherine has to Eris's physicality in the series. Obviously, Catherine gets way more upset with Eris later on when she makes a little mistake with a tiny little town. Oops. Oops. All zombies.
1: <laughs> but i mean over the course of the conversation it gets a little better cat cat is a little more generous in her description of eris next time she is talking about how she looks
0: erin's long red dress brought a pang of envy from me if only because of the way it fit around her curves perfectly beautiful amazing don't really love what follows but amazing what does follow I'd yet to grow in any of those to speak of myself, much to my dismay. At least I don't have to bind my breasts too hard under plate. Must be hells on her when she does. Just, I love EE e. with all my heart. I just, I find it overdone, particularly at a male author's hand, when female characters spend much time comparing themselves to others based solely on breast. It's just... I'm with you. I, the comparison
1: here, I do think, stems more from more from Cat's lust than envy. I would say, yeah. but yeah. But following this, one of one of Eris's, uh, as Cat calls them, bookends, introduces her, introduces herself. Yeah, and tells Cat, "You may kiss my hand, Waller Spawn." And I get it, Pracy nobility. Cat's just. Callowin, uh, yada yada. That is just so weird to just like meet somebody and drop. I don't know that we know exactly how harsh of a term this is, how how bad of a slur it is, but it just doesn't. It feels very weird, even for the Precy. And also, she's relying so heavily on Aeris' influence to get away with directly insulting the Black Knight's apprentice. There's a lot going on here that... Uh, Barika Unonti, is, she's really playing with fire.
0: Yeah, but she doesn't get away with it. Catherine sighs, her hand snaps out, closing around her little finger, and uh, I don't know what her title would be. The noble Unonti's eyes widen, and she has to bite down a scream when Catherine twists sharply, breaking the bone without much effort. Soft hands, this one. I really appreciate that the laws of pricy decency, which Catherine is violating here, you don't just break people's fingers, at court without the power to back it up there it is but Unonti's eyes widen and she has to bite down a scream if i were at a state function probably anywhere in the entire world and someone broke my finger i don't feel that screaming would qualify as a faux pas Praise is amazing
1: (laughs) well the last thing you want to do is be uncouth it's just a bone Yes. Cat follows us up with a, a threat, though. She says, if you say anything else about my breeding or the fact that I'm Callowin, I'll take something more drastic. And she threatens to take an eye since the three of them, or since... She threatens to take an eye since Unonti here doesn't seem to be using hers since she doesn't recognize that Cat is just not somebody you want to mess with. And I think that is just a powerful line. Like. I made fun of her little, oh, the density of smugness. But this, this is how you do it, Kat.
0: And then Unonti eyes Catherine like she turned into a raving madwoman. And honestly?
1: Honestly.
0: Yeah, this feels like something that merits reaction.
1: Yeah, if somebody were to break my finger because I, well, regardless of the context, if somebody were to break my finger in court, I would probably... Look at them like there was something wrong with them. Yeah, but the other bookend starts to do some magic, which Cat says feels like lightning. So you know, just following on our our trend of discussing the various senses used to describe magic, it's not that Cat sees flickers of electricity around the fingers or smells ozone on the air or anything like that. There's a feel of lightning in the magic itself before it even manifests. It's it's a fun the sense there is fun because it, it definitely seems like it's I don't know, name related, I would imagine, because Pat is very specific with it and it doesn't it doesn't seem like that's something that the average person can just do, you know, taste or smell or feel magic, but maybe I, I don't know. We don't get a lot of other perspectives of people who aren't either named or so used to being around magic that they don't describe it particularly well, like you know Cordelia or, or things like that. So, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting... It's just, I, I really find that part of magic in this setting so fascinating.
0: What I find fascinating is that Juniper is here for all of this, just watching, and Eris uses Catch the Fauxpas as an opportunity to really strike a strong barb, saying, I'm told you couldn't even manage to win at the college without using your name. And Juniper is right there to say, yeah, she used all the tools at her disposal. That's the purpose of the game's training for war. She'd have been an idiot not to use it. I like Juniper. She's, she's got that old school respect.
1: I dig the the image of this unbelievably tall orc just standing right next to this conversation. that's going on probably, you know, one of those little appetizer plates in one hand eating a a cutlet i think of some kind of meat off of it
0: (laughs) because of the size of the orc it looks just like one of those little sausages on a stick
1: it's a it's a chicken nugget basically and she's just listening to this argument watches cat break somebody's finger doesn't say anything just enjoying her her little snack and then breaks in to say no it's okay she wasn't cheating it's a war game i and they had sort of forgotten that she was there, more or less, because they weren't interacting with her at all, despite the fact that she's very tall for an orc. Good for Juniper. I'm glad she got to enjoy her food.
0: To be fair, that's taking advantage of the racism leveled against you. People are somewhat unwilling to see you as a person. Okay, be furniture until you need to comment. Fair. That's not a good position, but use it, Juniper, just to come out of nowhere and undercut someone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's... Juniper,
0: of course, has reason to, since the Seninki are ancient enemies.
1: Yeah, she, Eris, comes at uh, at Juniper by talking about her blood, calls her the Bane's blood, which you know, pretty cool name. And Juniper gets angry and says, "You don't get to talk about my blood. We still remember the Night of Red Winds." Do we? We don't ever learn what that is, right? I don't recall. This is one of those little tidbits of history that show up in this story that really add to the the world in a way that's very interesting. And also, sounds pretty spooky, not going
0: to lie. I would like to forget the Night of Red Winds, and I don't even know what it was. <laughs> Fair. Aerith uh, does try to leverage the situation, though. She says, you have assaulted a guest under my protection. Do you deny this? And Catherine wonders, had I been baited? And... I have little doubt the whole thing was a setup, sure. But I don't think we actually got to the setup. I think you may kiss my hand while her spawn was supposed to be the start of a, you know, we're going to needle her and needle her, and then when she's weak, we'll make her do something egregious. And Catherine just obliged immediately. I am convinced of it.
1: This was all an elaborate trap, and step one of the trap, hat looked over the whole thing and then stepped right into the end result.
0: Yeah. It's a Milgram experiment, except it's hooked up to herself, and she just started on 10.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty uh, pretty accurate uh, analog, I guess.
0: She says, sometimes I see something particularly breakable, and I just can't help myself. A true video game protagonist. <laughs> and one of the bookends replies, talk like that will cost you your tongue, Uchafe. <laughs> it means filth in Mthethwa, but Uchafe, isn't that fun?
1: It's a good word.
0: We should start ending episodes with Wade in there, Uchaf. No, wait, never mind. No, that's not
1: it. There's uh, a little bit more back and forth, and uh, Eris says something about Kat's promotion. Kat has no idea what she's talking about, and comes to find out that, apparently, she has made a request to become the head of the 15th Legion. Had no idea about that. She figures out that that probably came from Black, because who else could have done that, or you know scribe and this is just continuing the trend of black just refusing to forewarn or prepare cat in any way for what's going on hey we're going to court by the way i've put in a request for you to be in charge of the 15th legion how how could that possibly be beneficial for cat to not know that information ahead of time this is saving
0: it for her birthday
1: (laughs) oh good point good point
0: but the tensions rising eventually do have to uh, catch the attention of the higher-ups. And Dread Empress Militia, elegance personified, it says, demonstrates her enormous political acumen by saying, My, my. Such spirited youths we have in attendance tonight. What seems to be the problem, my dears? End of comment.
1: Militia is just taking advantage of the brief window where she knows Kat and Eris before they are all three on more or less equal footing to really just rub in the fact that she's in charge of them right now.
0: She's in charge of everyone right now. She's conquered the entire known world, known to people who have read this far in the guide, that is.
1: Fair enough. Uh, so Eris talks about how Cat hasn't done anything to deserve being in command of legionaries, and Cat's response is, well, I've attended the War College, a fair response. Not quite an argument to be made for being in charge of a legion yet, but, you know, she's done something. And Aeris Eris and her, one of her lackeys go on this little spiel about, oh, your attendance has not been marked by success, or the contrary, if anything. Isn't Cat one for a one? Like, doesn't she have a 100% win rate since she's attended the college?
0: Not only that, but she's barely been at the college at all, and Eris has... Been... I get that Aerith has been tracking her results. Sure. Like, they're in competition. But they also barely know each other, and Aerith is just, like, actively revealing that she's been following Catherine's every move for the past three days. <laughs> and then, I don't know, it's like, why are you so obsessed with me? You know? Stop. It's kind of creepy. You know?
1: It It is a little creepy. The... <laughs> This watching from the sidelines, though, is not only uh, the, the actions of Eris. After the, the guy who's standing there offers his little the contrary, if anything, comment, uh, Black steps in
0: briefly. Speaking over everyone in a calm voice, he just says, Captain. Captain replies, Lord, if the boy interrupts again, snap his neck with pleasure. It's a very hands-off and under-informative approach to mentorship He will not intervene, but he does dictate the rules of engagement. That's nice to know you've got somebody in your corner when he feels like it. And the rules of
1: engagement are, it's Cat and Eris exclusively, and if that guy gets involved, he dies. He's pretty firm on these rules.
0: Well, who's going to protest? So Eris reveals her great plot, and that's to get Catherine in a five-way melee, as the college once held. Uh, And that's cool. Very nice strategy, I think. You get five teams that's all by itself, all else being equal, a 20% chance of victory, 80% chance your plan works out, Harris. But then Catherine is known to have a name, and she's the one to beat. Juniper is the second to beat, but Catherine's like the big one. She's an outsider, she's named, and if that information hasn't leaked yet, it's about to. She's not one of us, and she's Going against us, we should take her down first and then worry about Juniper. That seems the clear plan. It's a pretty good strategy for a hands-off n- no-insurance type of strategy.
1: Well, no insurance that we've seen yet.
0: Yes, but in itself already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she goes on to say that the college held these grand five-way melees in older times. Better times. You grow up, stop. Age of Wonders is dying. Let it. But why do these games stop? It's completely unclear to me.
1: Uh, Probably because the war college is meant to train legionaries and their officers for war. And most wars don't involve five distinct sides who are all vying with each other on the active battlefield. It's not a particularly practical event. I I, I understand doing it as a unique situation that would encourage outside-the-box thinking and all of that. Which, oh sure, eh, learn some critical thinking. But given that it's not a particularly likely scenario to happen in the real world, and the fact that the legions are so much about standardization and preparation for broad things using broadly applicable strategies and you know the, the whole manual that Black cooked up, I don't think practicing for such a niche situation benefits the legions at large. So that'd be my, imma- that'd be why I would imagine that doesn't happen. In years past but before it was before, cool. Oh sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. In years past before black. Yeah. Heck throw them all together. See what happens. It's chaos. Make them figure out how to fight when everything, when nothing makes sense. They got to know how to fight with man eating tapirs running around. Might as well learn how to fight if there's four other people trying to, or four other armies trying to fight you. Sure. But So what are the terms of the wager? The terms of the wager are basically, if Cat wins, she gets to command the 15th. She proves her worth. Very quickly, I might add, this will be her second battle. And if she loses, you know, somebody more worthy, somebody who's probably already working their way up the chain of command in the 15th will take— Oh, no, wait, hold on. If Cat loses, Eris gets to be in charge of the 15th Legion. You know, Eris who didn't go to the War College hasn't proven that she's capable of doing anything other than sneak around and
0: yell at Black for not picking her. That heiress. Okay, you're saying this as though it's unreasonable, but the rationale is given and strong. She says, I would ask that for the slights she has given me, Catherine Foundling's appointment be made mine. It makes perfect sense, strategically.
1: Perfect. So I can't imagine that Black would be on board with Heiress controlling one-fifteenth of the entire army of Prace, the entire legions, because of slight? I don't know. This this is a weird thing for Black to just apparently allow. Obviously, it's not his call if the Empress makes the command in the first place. But the fact that she doesn't consult the like top tier of her military on some rando becoming... <laughs> the head of one of the legions such a weird moment maybe she's just fully fully sure the cat's gonna win
0: thing is black is ready to place catherine who is in all real ways untested at the head of a legion i think based on limited assessment of her but also on the story that it builds and he's content to rest on the story because he knows where the story could go and in most, if not all, of the paths that could follow, the Legion will be okay, he thinks. I assume. I suppose that's fair. And Militia trusts Black. Because when the offer is made, she says, It will be so. In two days hence, with the outline stakes. We know, as repeat readers, that one of the last things the Empress wants is for Wolof to get more power. She does not need that high seat of all high seats to gain anything against the Empress, but they're not going to. She can trust Black, and Black trusts Catherine. This is okay. And, by running around with this bet, Eris is draining away Wolofian political capital at the least, and if she intervenes any other way, well, that's a little more capital drained. And if she severely missteps, well then you get to soul box the Eris herself and ensure she inherits the high seat. Bada bing, hartachoki.
1: That would be kind of the ideal situation here for Militia, I guess, getting to soul box the Eris. As as this wraps up in Eris' favor, she gets what she wants out of this, she leans in to taunt Kat and tell her, all it cost me was a broken finger. And I have to say, that's such a <laughs> such a low stakes thing to say. It didn't even cost Eris that. It cost Eris's one of Eris' lackeys that. And also I'm sure she's got access to healing magic that can fix that pretty quickly. I don't think there was any cost here at all. So this is just this is an excellent taunt to say, you know, to to really highlight, call into relief what exactly Kat's first big misstep here was. I don't know. It's 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 a it's a good parting shot.
0: And Catherine's fingers clench, but it's not actually said that way. The grip on my sword strengthened until my knuckles were white. My face flushed with humiliation. No offense. But remember Catherine's middle school comment earlier? hmm She's continuing along that line of emotional extremity, which is just so uncouth in a pricey court. Her fingers are visibly clenching on the sword. Her face is visibly flushing. She's basically breaking down and weeping in the middle of court, as far as everyone's concerned.
1: But... She handles it really well after that because she decides to just be a living cliche by tightening the cloak around her shoulders and stepping out into onto a balcony in the rain. Oh to... the precy
0: love that. <laughs>
1: it's very, very melodramatic. It's it's very cool. She cuts a I'm sure she cuts a dramatic silhouette when she does this. And good for her.
0: And she senses black come out to her because of names that I don't care, just accepted. Uh and she says they're always going to get in my way, aren't they? Did learn just turn off for the past month? <laughs> she beat me, I said, knowing it to be the truth. Without lifting a finger. But <laughs> the finger Catherine, you lifted ah, the finger. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and all Black does is lay his hand on her shoulder the way she's seen some fathers do with their daughters.
1: He says it had never been this way with the two of us, and it never would be. Correct. It never will be. That's not the kind of relationship y'all have. But it had never been this way for the two of us. Never in the last, what, month? Cat, I understand that this is like another moment where Kat's kind of falling apart. She tends towards these, where she, I think she does so much work in maintaining a public face of the Squire and then the Queen and all these other roles that she... It's a bit of an emotional backlog and then explodes all at once, and this is one of those moments. And I think it's let it, making her <laughs> be overly sentimental about the relationship she has with this guy who she met a month ago
0: when he stabbed her. So, Catherine manages... Catherine walks into court. Militia makes sure everybody's eyes are on her. She breaks a finger out of nowhere. The Empress has to go over and mediate. Eris whispers a word to her, and she has a break down in the middle of the place, catches herself, walks out, stares out in the rain, dramatic, back comes. Everybody's just watching through the window. You know they are. And then out of nowhere, uh, I'm sure during a lull in the party too, lightning struck again, and I screamed at the night sky, I screamed until my throat was sore and my stomach hurt. Like, you know, someone was just walking out for a moment. The High Lady of Katan was walking out to say, uh, Lord Bla- Turn around." I'm sure the tower is soundproof. It is, but <laughs> I, it's fun seeing Catherine do things wrong when she does everything right. When she does wrong right later.
1: Hmm, that's an interesting way of putting that. Yeah, young Catherine is such a treat because we're so used to old Catherine who's just a monster and is a little insecure with some things and is definitely a person with flaws and uh, particular skills and insecurities. But she's also unbelievably competent, and seeing young young Catherine roll up and get mad enough to break somebody's finger, not to like further some plan, but just because she got mad at getting called a name, it, it's fun. It's fun seeing this development for Kat, for sure.
0: And it will be fun seeing her develop further, but I think this has developed all the way to full development. I I think I agree. I think that is just about all the time
1: we have for today.
0: Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Around to as we discuss... Dragons, wizards, and dark knights weighed in their blood. Podcast guy's talking to Reddick Redda is a fan-made podcast discussing Reddick Redda's a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at Guide to evil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Space Intro by Jeremusic70. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S Music. The music is provided by the generous license at pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by writing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Price. You have questions, comments, or contributions. Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com pgte Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter 22, all according to...
1: Dragons, wizard, you're going to leave that wizard and dark knights. You're not going to I'm just asking you're not going to pluralize that so it fits into the others.
0: There is no S on there. <laughs> it's a typo. <laughs> Wizards and dark knights weighed in their blood. It wouldn't have been
1: nearly such a thing except for the wizard.
0: <laughs> this might be the after credits. Which is really convenient because I don't have too much in the editing. Perfect.